would encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings in chapter 13, as together we read the first 10 verses. We remember that a, uh, a schism, a split, has occurred within the nation of Israel, and therefore amongst the covenant people. We remember that at this point in time, God's people are a theocracy. They were to be governed by God. They were to follow his laws. He set them out for them. And he was the one who had appointed their kings, the place that they would worship, and all of these things. But now, because of Solomon's apostasy, the nation has split in two. There is a northern kingdom, ten northern tribes, and then there is a southern kingdom, Benjamin and Judah, in the south. There are two kings now, Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. And the great question, of course, was would the northern kings be faithful? Would they continue to worship the Lord in the way that he had appointed? And unfortunately, the question, spoilers, is no, they are not going to be faithful. They are going to turn away. But we will see uh, the response of the Lord, and we'll think about how it, uh, how it interacts, if I can put it that way, or how it uh, teaches us about our own time and the way that we should think about things like worship and the nation and so on. But uh, before we come to the Lord and his word, let us go uh, to the one who gave us this word in the first place. Let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Sovereign Lord, help us now to divide your word aright, to understand it well. I pray that you would make us attentive, help us to set aside our cell phones and all of those things that we use to distract ourselves, all of those devices that the devil can use to to turn us away from hearing your word. We know that he loves to do that. He wants the seed to fall on the path, to be snatched up by birds, never even to uh, have had a chance to, to take root or even germinate, Lord, for it to be utterly useless to us. And Lord, if we allow distractions to rule us, this time will be useless. It will be ill-spent. And Lord, it would be a foolish thing if we had opportunities to hear the most important words, the words of life, as your word puts it, and then to listen to meaningless things, frivolities, and, and just the, uh, the desiderata of, of everyday life, the things that are here today and gone tomorrow, vanity and cotton candy. Oh, Lord, let that not be the case. Let us instead ponder the things of eternity. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. First Kings. Chapter 13, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him! Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please, entreat the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, 
Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What a beautiful day. What an amazing moment this was. Here we have the new kingdom of Israel. And it's, it's not just a day in the new kingdom. It's, it's an important day. It's almost an independence day. They had once been heavily taxed. They had once had their children forced into, into forced labor by the kings in the south, Solomon in particular. And none of their tribes got to be rulers. None of their tribes got to be priests and so on. They were, they were spitefully misused, they would say, by their, their southern brothers. But now they have their own king, a king from Ephraim, one of the northern tribes. His name is Jeroboam. And now he is inaugurating Bethel Church. He's setting it up for the first time. The altar has been put in its place. They have, of course, a a golden calf. There's a a duplicate uh, to the north in Dan. So if you lived in the north, you could go to, to Dan Church. And if you were in the south, you could go to Bethel Church. And there he has... Uh, a, a, a place for the people of God to come and to worship as they saw fit. Finally, we're not doing the, the same old stodgy worship that had occurred in, in Israel since, since the people had come into the promised land. For hundreds of years, they had been going up either to first the tabernacle and doing their sacrifices there. And it was always the, the Levites and the, the kings never took part in the, the worship and none of the tribes other than the Levites had a part in the worship and so on. It was always according to the same pattern that God had said in his, in his word. And then even after they built this new beautiful temple in Jerusalem, the worship doesn't change. It's the same way. It's still the Levites, still the altar. The, the king doesn't get to burn incense or sacrifices. The other tribes, all they can do is, is stand and watch and take part in the way that they were told, they have a, the same calendar. They were supposed to go up for the same rituals on the same dates, always the same. And always their tribes were excluded from participation, active participation in the word of God. Now everything has changed. We have contemporary, relevant worship going on here. That brings in the entire nation. There's the people standing there. There's their new king. What pride. I mean, if they had uh, their own media, the guys would have been there reporting favorably. Could you imagine, you know, standing there with your family? The king is about to burn incense, inaugurating this new worship, new prophets, new everything. It's a new day. And then what happens? You see, advancing from the south, coming up to where the king is standing by the altar, is this religious fanatic. He's dressed like one of the old school prophets. He's got his, you know, his, his garment on and his belt, and he comes up, and he makes this awful, awful declaration. Oh, and of course, he's a southerner. He's from the southern tribes, of course. And he's telling them what they're doing wrong. He cries out against the very altar, this new altar, that they were about to inaugurate for their sacrifices. And he tells them even worse. Where does this guy get off? He he tells them that the day is coming 
when a king of Judah, a descendant of David by the name of Josiah, would ritually defile this altar. What is he telling the new nation? He is telling them that the house of Jeroboam will fall. He's telling them that, in fact, if this is going to happen, probably that the nation will fall and, and be destroyed. And then he says the sign of all of these things happening will be that the altar itself, this new altar at Bethel Church, is going to split and all the ashes are going to be poured out. What a bummer <laughs> on such a great and patriotic day, a day of national unity, a day of, of new religious pride. And he comes in and he, he just... Oh, he ruins it, but it doesn't matter. King Jeroboam knows exactly what to do. And so he extends his arm, the arm of the civil magistrate, points at him and he says, arrest him. We're going to get rid of this guy. We'll silence him just as God's people are silenced or they attempt to silence God's people throughout the, the nations, even to this day in places like China, Saudi Arabia, North Korea and so on. They know what to do with them. Disappear these people. So he points at him and he says, arrest him. And then suddenly, to the horror of all the onlookers, his hand withers, shrivels up. It's palsied. He can't even bring it back. There it is, utterly useless. And he finds himself standing there. I have no doubt he went deathly pale at that moment in time. And then, even worse, just as the prophet had said, the altar splits in two. And all the ashes and the coals and, you know, the very place that they were going to, to be sacrificing these animals in this new worship service, it, it pours out. What an awful moment in time. It seems like, although the people loved it and the king loved it, there was somebody who really did not love what was going on. And that would be God, the person that they were supposedly worshiping. Because in what they were doing, they were going against everything that he had ever told them. They were violating his commandments and doing things that, while well, they pleased them, definitely did not please God. Well, who is this prophet who was sent to deliver the word of God? The interesting thing is he remains entirely anonymous in the Bible. He is simply referred to as the man of God. And that expression is synonymous with prophet. It occurs in the book of Kings 37 times. And it's actually predominantly Elijah and Elisha who were called men of God or man of God. Uh, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, uh, says that he was actually named Yadon, but there's no reason to believe that that was the case. So uh, we don't really know who he was. But the important thing to remember here is his identity was less important than the one for whom he spoke. Amen. I mean, in, in many ways, he was simply a messenger who had come to deliver a message to the king and the people of the northern kingdom from God. This is what God is telling you. He tells them directly. And it's not like he just stands there and says, I think these things are going to happen, or it seems to me, or in my opinion. No, he says these things, and he says, this is the sign that I'm speaking for God. Boom, it happens. The altar splits in two. The king's hand is withered, and he's standing there. Well, God had sent Ahijah to tell Jeroboam, I'm going to give you ten tribes. I'm going to make the northern kingdom. I'm going to create this new nation, and you're going to rule over them. And if you keep covenant with me, if you continue to, to keep my commandments and worship the way that I, I told you to worship, then everything will go well. Would he do it? And the answer is, of course, no. He was very happy to be made the, the king of the northern tribes, but he had no intention of obeying the Lord. 
And so the Lord now sends another prophet to rebuke him for this idolatrous worship, this new creation of his. Jeroboam had thought it was nothing at all to change every element of God's commanded worship. But it wasn't. It was very, very, very wrong. Jeroboam had changed the times. He had changed the festivals. He had changed the places. He had changed the priests. He had added images. He even thought as a, as a king that he could act as a priest. Am I not the priest king of the northern kingdom and do whatever he wants? In that sense, he's acting as a, a, as a false messiah. I hope you see that. He is trying to bring together the, the office of king and priest in himself, and he was manifestly not worthy of doing that. This is no Melchizedek. This is no Jesus Christ. He clearly thought that there would be no repercussions for his actions. It seemed to make sense. I mean, we're a new kingdom. We're a new nation. We're a new everything we need. We need this new worship so the people won't go south. They won't be reminded of their, their solidarity. Now, there were people who refused to do that within the northern kingdom, people who still went to the temple. We read about that. They still continued on in the right way. One of the things that we need to remember is even when a nation shifts over to doing evil, worshiping in ways that the Lord has said, you shall not do this, or ignoring his commands, you shall do this. Even when that happens, remember this, the Lord always preserves to himself a remnant. Sometimes we can forget that, can't we? Mm. You remember that time that when Elijah thought, I alone am left in all of Israel? I'm the last of the true worshipers. We can get that kind of mindset. Sometimes we'll be in a, in a, in a school or a business or a setting where we think, I, I alone am left a worshiper of the Lord God Almighty. It's possible to you know, travel to places in the United States where you can go uh, literally hundreds of miles and not find another evangelical Christian. But do not think because of that that the Lord has not preserved a remnant for himself. He always has. He always will. The church will never be entirely gone from the earth. But there are times when, of course, it can be severely oppressed, pressed down, and it can shrink substantially. And this is what's happening. Well... God begs to differ with Jeroboam about the value of his new worship. It is an abomination before him. Jeroboam has sinned greatly. And he's been immediately punished. His hand is withered. He's standing there. It's a rebuke upon him. The very hand that was the the right hand of the civil magistrate. The sign of civil power has, has withered. It's not capable of doing anything now. God is showing his power over all kings and all leaders, all who are in authority. What will happen? How will he respond? Will Jeroboam say, well, um, this is very unpleasant, but I have another arm. And I'm sure we can do a, you know, a quick repair job on the altar. Let's get, let's get on with it. We'll continue on, shall we? Everybody forget what's happened. No, he doesn't do that. He has more sense than that. Jeroboam cries out to the man of God to call upon his God to heal his arm. But note this. He goes to an intermediary. He says to the man of God, you cry out to your God to repair my arm. Not, O Lord God of Israel, I have sinned greatly against you. Please forgive me and heal my arm. He doesn't go directly himself. No, he he depends upon the prophet to intercede for him. But... It's good that he understands God has done this to him. And it's only God who can take away that blight at this point in time. Good insofar as it goes. But is he really repentant? Is Jeroboam repentant? No. No. Jeroboam is sorry. Many people sin. And there are terrible consequences to their sin. And they're sorry for their sin. 
but they won't repent of their sin. They won't turn away from it. It is the way in which they are set. The answer to is he repentant is a firm no. After his arm is healed, he doesn't turn from his false worship. He doesn't say, I, I've sinned greatly against the Lord. We're going to go back to the temple and so on. He doesn't humble himself. What does he try to do? Well, he tries to co-opt the man of God. Come home with me. Eat, drink, be my friend. We'll see if we can't get you on my side and so on. But the man of God had been warned not to do that. Why? It would have been showing favor and fellowship to a man who's manifestly an unbeliever. He does not want to. And, and remember, that's, that's what we do when we eat and drink with somebody who is an apostate, who is speaking against the Lord. It's one of the reasons why in excommunication, one of the things that we're told to do is not to have table fellowship with that person any longer. Friend, I, I, I love you. I want you, to be, I want you to be saved, but I'm not coming to your house. I'm not going to eat and drink with you. I'm not going to pretend that we're on the same level. You're, you're in a, a terrible situation. You've sinned against the Lord. You've shown that you're not part of his body. You're in a, in a very dangerous place. So the prophet does not want to put his seal upon what they've done. The Lord has told him, don't do this. Don't go, don't eat, don't drink. Return by a different way. Do all these things. And the man of God intends to honor that. That's something that we need to remember, even when it's hard. That would have been embarrassing. The king says to him, now, oh, thank you. My, my arm is healed and so on. Why well, 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 obviously, we're not going to go ahead with the, the scheduled, uh, you know, activity. Prepare the altar. Uh, why don't you come home with me? And it'll be, you know, it'll be very nice. And everybody's watching and he says, no. <laughs> if you were to give me half your kingdom, I, I wouldn't come home. Not under any circumstances. God has said these things. How embarrassing. But then he leaves. One of the things I want you to see is how like Pharaoh Jeroboam is here. Here we have the, the leader of the people of God and he's acting like the very one who had made their lives miserable. In Exodus 9.27, we read, And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron, and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know you will not yet fear the Lord God. And so... Moses removed that particular plague. And this, of course, happened again and again. Entreat the Lord your God to take this away from us and so on. And then the Lord does. And then they simply go right back into the way that it had been going. And Jeroboam does the same thing. It's a sad day when the leader of the people of God is acting like Pharaoh. But it does tell us something very important. Even miracles... Things that cannot be contradicted. Everybody saw his hand wither. Everybody saw the altar split. And yet, no change of heart is produced by this. But you will see this, not just in the Bible, and it occurs throughout the Bible again and again, but in life, disastrous acts of providence that should make a hard heart soft have no effect. Things that... that should bring a man who hates the Lord and his people to their knees and turn them out of their way. They don't do that because the events themselves can't change a heart and stony uh, heart. You can't get a man who hates the Lord to love God simply by doing miracles in front of them. Jesus proved that. 
The Pharisees couldn't deny the miracles that he was doing. So what did they do? They said, oh, no, he's doing these by the power of the devil. That must be the case. Theologically, it made no sense. Christ pointed that out to us. The devil is divided against himself. The devil's casting out his own demons. Are you guys stupid? I mean, honestly, it's ridiculous. And yet it happens again and again and again. Well, you know, Andy, these were ancient people. You know, they didn't have the common sense that we have. When we do things that go against God's word and they produce terrible effects, we change immediately, right? No. We live in a day and an age where we have the saddest. I mean, think about this. We have the saddest children in American history. We have produced a generation where the, the statistics were 40% of young girls contemplated suicide. 40% last year, according to statistics. Almost half. We've never had a, a nation that is so sad, so messed up, so confused. And what is our answer? More! <laughs> Trans the children! Get her on social media! Put that boy in a dress! It'll be happiness! We just need more of the same things that are killing us! No more Christianity, more atheism, more you don't really matter more than a rock in outer space. But you're very important, as long as you have the right identity. If you don't have the right identity, well, you're not important at all. You're very bad because of the way you look, because of your sex, because of... We have a nation in which our boys are failing to launch. And like never before, they don't go to school, they don't form families, they don't get married, they don't go to church. And yet, we are told that toxic masculinity is our biggest problem. <coughs> what, what foolishness. I could pile example upon example of the way that we are being shown manifestly by God. This doesn't work. You need to come back to my word. You need to come back to biblical religion. You are making yourselves into an abominably, horrifically confused, messed up, unhappy, suicidal, <coughs> demonic people. Will you not turn? But evidence alone doesn't do it. The word of God has to reach into the heart and change it. We need the gospel. And if a man will not listen to the prophets, he won't listen to the apostles and so on, you can give him any evidence in the world and he will not turn from it. And unfortunately, this king will not turn. This people in this particular circumstance will not turn. I keep hoping America will turn, but that, that remains to be seen, doesn't it? In any event, the prophet, and I want you to notice this, makes a prophecy of the coming of a king who is going to burn the priests and the bones of all of these false priests upon this altar. He's going to defile it. It's, he's coming. And 300 years after this prophecy was made, and note he mentions the king by name. Josiah will come. 300 years later, it comes to pass. This is one of the great name predictions within the Bible. It's only rivaled by uh, Isaiah's prediction that Cyrus would come and would set the people free. But the Lord wants his people to know, I know what's going to happen. I've set everything. God is in charge of the timeline. Now, this should be a great assurance to us. It means nothing surprises him. 
means everything is plotted out and we need not fear ultimately. Times may be hard, things may make us anxious, but we know ultimately the Lord has to use the popular saying, got this. And that ultimately everything will run in the way that he wants. So if we look at 2 Kings 23.15, all of these things happen. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had made, who had made Israel sin, had made. Both that altar and the high place he broke down. And he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain. And he sent and took the bones of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed to proclaim these words. Then he said, what gravestone is that that I see? So the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed those things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, let him alone, let no one move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. So we see 300 years later, the very things that that prophet had prophesied coming to pass. Now, let me make some quick applications here. The first is very simple, but nonetheless very important. How does God want to be worshipped? How do we know? There are so many people who say, well, I know how God wants to be worshipped, because when I know I'm worshipping God the right way, I feel good. No, that's the answer to how do you want to worship God. Okay, that's not an answer to how does God want to be worshipped. Where would we look to find out where God wants to be, how he wants to be worshipped? The answer is in his word. Okay. Now, it would irritate the living daylights out of you, I guarantee it, if every time your birthday came up, you had made it very clear, okay, I hate surprise birthdays. Um, I hate going out to uh, a restaurant where there's lots of noise and and distraction. I I just want to have a, I I want to have a a peaceful birthday at home with a few close friends where we can, you know, celebrate and I can lament the passing of another year and then, you know, we we can go on. And then every single year, your spouse booked chilies and a surprise birthday. We're going out to dinner. Oh, okay. Well, you know, do I need to dress up now? You don't need to dress up. This is not a big event. And then you're there. Surprise! There's 500 people. And again, every year, doing what you expressly told them not to do. Would this engender love and good feelings in your heart, do you think? Would it lead you to believe... Actually, hun, I think you like large, you know, you like large gatherings, you like chilies, you like lots of friends. You like, this isn't about me. It's about you. And unfortunately, that's what happens in the fallen human heart. When we devise worship, it's the idol factory coming out with things that, that we are pleased by. And that's the route that we inevitably end up taking when it comes to worship since we're fallen. Unless we specifically listen to the word of God. And we do what he says, regardless of whether it's new, relevant, contemporary, nationalistic, or any of those things. It is simply the case that because worship is popular does not mean it's good or right or pleasing to God. An entire nation can think God needs to be worshiped this way as it was in the Northern Kingdom of Israel, and yet it be completely wrong and something that he abominates. In other words, when this worship is taking place, you aren't pleasing him. You're actually making him angry by your worship. And one of the things we need to remember is that there is a, there's a rhyme and a reason to God's worship. You remember he said we have to worship him in spirit and in truth. Our heart has to be in it, absolutely, there has to be zeal. But at the same time, it has to be according to truth, God's truth. 
And it has to point us ultimately, just as the worship in the Old Testament was intended to point us gradually to the Messiah, all of the things that took place so that when the Messiah did come, the groundwork had already been laid for that great work of redemption that Jesus was about to do. That's why when John, you remember, points to Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Jewish brain would have been thinking, Lamb of God, Passover Lamb, blood of atonement. You know, all of those things would have been coming together. Oh, this is the one that all the lambs pointed forward to, the reality, the ultimate sacrifice. And again and again, it's all interwoven. But once we go off on our own track, and we begin to incorporate bits and pieces of Egyptian religion, Canaanite religion, this culture, that culture, and so on, the way that Jeroboam was. We're no longer pointing to the Messiah. We're simply telling you know, people about the things that we like in worship, the kind of things that sensually you know, amaze us, astound us, encourage us, entertain us, and so on. It's no longer about God. It's no longer about the Messiah. It's about us. And we are just as capable of doing that in this day and age as we are then. I was watching a video online. I was watching a video online. Oh, there you go. That's the story of my life. Um, somebody sent to me. It was uh, from a channel called Messed Up Church on YouTube. And it was Christmas extravaganzas from 2022. Holy mackerel. Okay. It, it, it's like, it was like Dolly Parton had, had created these things. They were just, uh, it, it was you know, multimedia extravaganza. Some of them you were like, that's millions of dollars of showmanship there. What did it have to do with, with the incarnation? What did it have to do with Jesus? Or what? Nothing. Mm. Nothing. There were many of these things where, I mean, it was like Vegas and Broadway and so on, but it had nothing at all to do with God and his word. Was God pleased by these multi-million dollar extravaganza shows and so on, drummers on zip lines? You know, I mean, it was, no. I can honestly say no. It was an abomination. This is not what God wanted. It was man creating man-centered worship to please his own senses. We are very capable of doing exactly the same thing Jeroboam did. That's why, and if you'll turn in your, um, your hymnals, purple hymnals to the back. When it came to the reformation of worship in England, which was most needed, though, and... Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to page 932. The Westminster Divines said this. It's interesting. Uh, some of their paragraphs are only one sentence. This is not, thankfully. But, uh, but it is a succinct paragraph that sums up the very nature of worship. We read, The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all. And is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation like those calves that were created by Jeroboam or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. You want to worship God aright? Listen to him. What did Jesus say? In John chapter 14, about how you show him you love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. And also, please keep in mind that every religious leader who has ever entered into this world is at best an under-shepherd of the Lord. He has no authority himself. I can't create stuff and tell you to do it. I don't have authority to do that. I do not have authority 
to design rites and ceremonies and then say, we are going to do them. That is not something that's put in my hands. And it would be wrong if I did. If I do, find yourself a new pastor and write quick. Well, all of that to say that the importance of true worship is that it points us towards Christ. It points us to the means of grace that he has created. It reveals the truth about God. It reveals the truth about our duty. It may, not be encouraged, it may not be exactly what the nation wants at that particular time, what the culture thinks is cool, but it is what God wants us to do. Let me ask you a question in the next uh, and final application. It's this. When you are rebuked by the word of God, how do you respond? When you realize you have sinned, in action, inaction, in your worship or failure to worship, in going against one of God's commandments, when it's brought to you in a cataclysm or something occurs in your life, when you are chastened by God, God chastens every son whom he loves. If you're one of his kids and you get in a pattern of sin, trust me, he will chasten you. But when that happens, how do you respond? Do you resist? Do you say, you hate me? You know, and then do the toddler thing, refusing adamantly to be broken. What does the Lord want from you? He wants a broken and contrite heart. Amen. When Jeroboam sinned against the Lord, when he was chastened by the Lord in his body and in his false worship, what should he have done? He should have repented. He should have asked the Lord for forgiveness and gone in a different direction. Is that what you do? I see so many people, though, unfortunately, even people within the church, they sin and they're chastened and then they continue on in the sin. And the negative consequences continue to pile up. They just never, they never turn. They never get back on board. People come and they tell them the truth and and the person, you know, can't argue against it. They know it's the truth and yet they don't accept it. They don't act accordingly. You know, you really need to go to church more often than you do. I think, you know, once a month, that's not enough. Yeah, 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 I know. I don't think it's having good effects on your family either. Yeah, 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 I know. But do they change? No. It's just one of many examples I could give. What does real repentance look like? Well, James tells us in one sense what Repentance doesn't look like. He says in James 1.21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful uh, here, but a doer of, this, of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. What is James saying? He says, if we are really Christians, if we're really repentant, what happens is we see ourselves, we see our sin in the mirror, and we say, oh, I need to change. But there is a time where we can look and say, hmm, and then, well, and then move away. Forget what we saw. Forget the truth. And then simply go back into the patterns that we want. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. If you want to look and see what real repentance looks like, I would urge you to read Psalm 51 today. I'm not going to read it in its entirety. It's a very long psalm. But that's the psalm where David confesses his sin before the Lord. 
the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, and he asks for the Lord to restore to him a right spirit, to give him back the joy of his salvation, to blot out his transgression, to purge away his iniquity. He knows that he can't do any of those things himself, and he needs the Lord's forgiveness, that he's ashamed of what he did, but he wants to be restored to the joy that he once had in fellowship with God. And the Lord honored that prayer. He admitted he sinned, and the Lord restored him. Now, there were consequences to his sin. There always are. But nonetheless, his fellowship with the Lord was not broken. That's what we need to do. When you guys sin, and you will, go to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness. Repent. Remember what it looked like when you saw your sin reflected in the perfect holiness of God. And then say, that needs to change And with God's help, it will. And then ask him, blot out my transgressions, remove my iniquities from me, restore to me the joy of my salvation, and then get in that new track. Do what Jeroboam didn't do. Repent and believe on the Lord. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we do thank you, Lord, for the examples that you give us in Scripture. We pray, O Lord, that we would remember that you're right. And when we disagree, Lord, we're the ones who are wrong. When your word says something and we don't like it, then we need to change. Remind us also, O Lord, that true repentance means moving in a new direction, moving in the direction of righteousness. And O Lord, we know that we'll never do that unless you change our hearts and you conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do that. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for this day. And we look forward to that day when we will have no more sin. We thank you for the promise that that day is surely coming. 